One weekend, Jobs was visiting Wayne at his apartment, engaging as they often did in philosophical discussions, when Wayne said that there was something he needed to tell him. Yeah, I think I know what it is, Jobs replied. I think you like men. Wayne said yes. It was my first encounter with someone who I knew was gay, Jobs recalled. He planted the right perspective of it for me. Jobs grilled him. When you see a beautiful woman, what do you feel? Wayne replied, It's like when you look at a beautiful horse. You can appreciate it, but you don't want to sleep with it. You appreciate beauty for what it is. Wayne said that it is a testament to Jobs that he felt like revealing this to him. Nobody at Atari knew, and I could count on my toes and fingers the number of people I told in my whole life. But I guess it just felt right to tell him that he would understand, and it didn't have any effect on our relationship. One reason Jobs was eager to make some money in early 1974 was that Robert Friedland, who had gone to India the summer before, was urging him to take his own spiritual journey there. Friedland had studied in India with Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, who had been the guru to much of the 60s hippie movement. Jobs decided he should do the same, and he recruited Daniel Kotke to go with him. Jobs was not motivated by mere adventure. For me, it was a serious search, he said. I'd been turned on to the idea of enlightenment and trying to figure out who I was and how I fit into things. Kotke adds that Jobs's quest seemed driven partly by not knowing his birth parents. There was a hole in him, and he was trying to fill it. When Jobs told the folks at Atari that he was quitting to go search for a guru in India, the jovial Alcorn was amused. He comes in and stares at me and declares, I'm going to find my guru. And I say, no shit, that's super, write me. And he says he wants me to help pay, and I tell him bullshit. Then Alcorn had an idea. Atari was making kits and shipping them to Munich, where they were built into finished machines and distributed by a wholesaler in Turin. But there was a problem. Because the games were designed for the American rate of 60 frames per second, there were frustrating interference problems in Europe where the rate was 50 frames per second. Alcorn sketched out a fix with Jobs and then offered to pay for him to go to Europe to implement it. It's got to be cheaper to get to India from there, he said. Jobs agreed, so Alcorn sent him on his way with the exhortation, Say hi to your guru for me. Jobs spent a few days in Munich, where he solved the interference problem, but in the process, he flummoxed the dark-suited German managers. They complained to Alcorn that he dressed and smelled like a bum and behaved rudely. I said, did he solve the problem? And they said, yeah. I said, if you got any more problems, you just call me. I got more guys just like him. They said, no, no, we'll take care of it next time. For his part, Jobs was upset that the Germans kept trying to feed him meat and potatoes. They don't even have a word for vegetarian, he complained, incorrectly, in a phone call to Alcorn. He had a better time when he took the train to see the distributor in Turin, 
where the Italian pastas and his host's camaraderie were more simpatico. I had a wonderful couple of weeks in Turin, which is this charged-up industrial town, he recalled. The distributor took me every night to dinner at this place where there were only eight tables and no menu. You just tell them what you wanted, and they made it. One of the tables was on reserve for the chairman of Fiat. It was really super. He next went to Lugano, Switzerland, where he stayed with Friedland's uncle, and from there took a flight to India. When he got off the plane in New Delhi, he felt waves of heat rising from the tarmac, even though it was only April. He had been given the name of a hotel, but it was full, so he went to one his taxi driver insisted was good. I'm sure he was getting some backsheesh, because he took me to this complete dive. Jobs asked the owner whether the water was filtered and foolishly believed the answer. I got dysentery pretty fast. I was sick, really sick, a really high fever. I dropped from 160 pounds to 120 in about a week. Once he got healthy enough to move, he decided that he needed to get out of Delhi. So he headed to the town of Haridwar in western India near the source of the Ganges which was having a festival known as the Kumbha Mela. More than ten million people poured into a town that usually contained fewer than one hundred thousand residents. There were holy men all around, tents with this teacher and that teacher. There were people riding elephants, you name it. I was there for a few days, but I decided that I needed to get out of there, too. He went by train and bus to a village near Nain-Tal in the foothills of the Himalayas. That was where Neem Karoli Baba lived, or had lived. By the time Jobs got there, he was no longer alive, at least in the same incarnation. Jobs rented a room with a mattress on the floor from a family who helped him recuperate by feeding him vegetarian meals. There was a copy there of Autobiography of a Yogi in English that a previous traveler had left, and I read it several times because there was not a lot to do, and I walked around from village to village and recovered from my dysentery. Among those who were part of the community there was Larry Brilliant, an epidemiologist who was working to eradicate smallpox and later ran Google's philanthropic arm and the Skoll Foundation. He became Jobs' lifelong friend. At one point, Jobs was told of a young Hindu holy man who was holding a gathering of his followers at the Himalayan estate of a wealthy businessman. It was a chance to meet a spiritual being and hang out with his followers, but it was also a chance to have a good meal. I could smell the food as we got near, and I was very hungry. As Jobs was eating, the holy man, who was not much older than Jobs, picked him out of the crowd, pointed at him, and began laughing maniacally. He came running over and grabbed me and made a tooting sound and said, You are just like a baby, recalled Jobs. I was not relishing this attention. Taking Jobs by the hand, he led him out of the worshipful crowd and walked him up to a hill where there was a well and a small pond. We sit down, and he pulls out this straight razor. I'm thinking he's a nutcase and begin to worry. Then he pulls out a bar of soap. I had long hair at the time, and he lathered up my hair and shaved my head. 
He told me that he was saving my health. Daniel Kotke arrived in India at the beginning of the summer, and Jobs went back to New Delhi to meet him. They wandered, mainly by bus, rather aimlessly. By this point, Jobs was no longer trying to find a guru who could impart wisdom, but instead was seeking enlightenment through ascetic experience, deprivation, and simplicity. He was not able to achieve inner calm. Kaki remembers him getting into a furious shouting match with a Hindu woman in a village marketplace, who Jobs alleged had been watering down the milk she was selling them. Yet Jobs could also be generous. When they got to the town of Manali, Kotke's sleeping bag was stolen with his traveler's checks in it. Steve covered my food expenses and bus ticket back to Delhi, Kotke recalled. He also gave Kotke the rest of his own money, $100, to tide him over. During his seven months in India, he had written to his parents only sporadically, getting mail at the American Express office in New Delhi when he passed through, and so they were somewhat surprised when they got a call from the Oakland airport asking them to pick him up. They immediately drove up from Los Altos. My head had been shaved, I was wearing Indian cotton robes, and my skin had turned a deep chocolate brown red from the sun, he recalled. So I'm sitting there, and my parents walked past me about five times, and finally my mother came up and said, Steve? And I said, Hi. They took him back home, where he continued trying to find himself. It was a pursuit with many paths toward enlightenment. In the mornings and evenings he would meditate and study Zen, and in between he would drop in to audit physics or engineering courses at Stanford. The Search Jobs's interest in Eastern spirituality, Hinduism, Zen Buddhism, and the search for enlightenment was not merely the passing phase of a nineteen-year-old. Throughout his life, he would seek to follow many of the basic precepts of Eastern religions, such as the emphasis on experiential prajna, wisdom, or cognitive understanding that is intuitively experienced through concentration of the mind. Years later, sitting in his Palo Alto garden, he reflected on the lasting influence of his trip to India. Coming back to America was, for me, much more of a cultural shock than going to India. The people in the Indian countryside don't use their intellect like we do. They use their intuition instead, and their intuition is far more developed than in the rest of the world. Intuition is a very powerful thing, more powerful than intellect, in my opinion. That's had a big impact on my work. Western rational thought is not an innate human characteristic. It is learned and is the great achievement of Western civilization. In the villages of India, they never learned it. They learned something else, which is in some ways just as valuable, but in other ways is not. That's the power of intuition and experiential wisdom. Coming back after seven months in Indian villages, I saw the craziness of the Western world as well as its capacity for rational thought. If you just sit and observe, you will see how restless your mind is. If you try to calm it, it only makes it worse. 
but over time it does calm, and when it does, there's room to hear more subtle things. That's when your intuition starts to blossom, and you start to see things more clearly and be in the present more. Your mind just slows down, and you see a tremendous expanse in the moment. You see so much more than you could see before. It's a discipline. You have to practice it. Zen has been a deep influence in my life ever since. At one point, I was thinking about going to Japan and trying to get into the Ihiji Monastery, but my spiritual advisor urged me to stay here. He said there is nothing over there that isn't here. And he was correct. I learned the truth of the Zen saying that if you are willing to travel around the world to meet a teacher, one will appear next door. Jobs did, in fact, find a teacher right in his own neighborhood. Shunru Suzuki, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and ran the San Francisco Zen Center, used to come to Los Altos every Wednesday evening to lecture and meditate with a small group of followers. After a while, he asked his assistant, Kobun Chino Atagawa, to open a full-time center there. Jobs became a faithful follower along with his occasional girlfriend, Chris Ann Brennan, and Daniel Kotke and Elizabeth Holmes. He also began to go by himself on retreats to the Tassajara Zen Center, a monastery near Carmel, where Coben also taught. Kotke found Coben amusing. His English was atrocious, he recalled. He would speak in a kind of haiku with poetic, suggestive phrases. We would sit and listen to him, and half the time we had no idea what he was going on about. I took the whole thing as a kind of light-hearted interlude. Holmes was more into the scene. We would go to Coben's meditations, sit on Zafu cushions, and he would sit on a dais, she said. We learned how to tune out distractions. It was a magical thing. One evening we were meditating with Coben when it was raining and he taught us how to use ambient sounds to bring us back to focus on our meditation. As for Jobs, his devotion was intense. He became really serious and self-important and just generally unbearable, according to Kotke. He began meeting with Coben almost daily, and every few months they went on retreats together to meditate. I ended up spending as much time as I could with him, Jobs recalled. He had a wife who was a nurse at Stanford and two kids. She worked the night shift, so I would go over and hang out with him in the evenings. She would get home about midnight and shoo me away. They sometimes discuss whether Job should devote himself fully to spiritual pursuits, but Coben counseled otherwise. He assured Jobs that he could keep in touch with his spiritual side while working in a business. The relationship turned out to be lasting and deep. Seventeen years later, Coben would perform Jobs's wedding ceremony. Jobs's compulsive search for self-awareness also led him to undergo primal scream therapy, which had recently been developed and popularized by a Los Angeles psychotherapist named Arthur Janov. It was based on the Freudian theory that psychological problems are caused by the repressed pains of childhood. Janov argued that they could be resolved by re-suffering these primal moments while fully expressing the pain, sometimes in screams. To Jobs, 
This seemed preferable to talk therapy because it involved intuitive feeling and emotional action rather than just rational analyzing. This was not something to think about, he later said. This was something to do, to close your eyes, hold your breath, jump in, and come out the other end more insightful. A group of Janoff's adherents ran a program called the Oregon Feeling Center in an old hotel in Eugene that was managed by Jobs' Reed College guru, Robert Friedland, whose all-one-farm commune was nearby. In late 1974, Jobs signed up for a 12-week course of therapy there, costing $1,000. Steve and I were both into personal growth, so I wanted to go with him, Kotke recounted, but I couldn't afford it. Jobs confided to close friends that he was driven by the pain he was feeling about being put up for adoption and not knowing about his birth parents. Steve had a very profound desire to know his physical parents so he could better know himself, Friedland later said. He had learned from Paul and Clara Jobs that his birth parents had both been graduate students at a university and that his father might be Syrian. He had even thought about hiring a private investigator, but he decided not to do so for the time being. I didn't want to hurt my parents, he recalled, referring to Paul and Clara. He was struggling with the fact that he had been adopted, according to Elizabeth Holmes. He felt that it was an issue that he needed to get hold of emotionally. Jobs admitted as much to her. This is something that is bothering me and I need to focus on it, he said. He was even more open with Greg Calhoun. He was doing a lot of soul-searching about being adopted, and he talked about it with me a lot, Calhoun recalled. The primal scream and the mucusless diets He was trying to cleanse himself and get deeper into his frustration about his birth. He told me he was deeply angry about the fact that he had been given up. John Lennon had undergone the same primal scream therapy in 1970, and in December of that year he released the song Mother with the Plastic Ono Band. It dealt with Lennon's own feelings about a father who had abandoned him and a mother who had been killed when he was a teenager. The refrain includes the haunting chant, Mama Don't Go, Daddy Come Home. Jobs used to play the song often. Jobs later said that Janov's teachings did not prove very useful. He offered a ready-made, button-down answer, which turned out to be far too oversimplistic. It became obvious that it was not going to yield any great insight. But Holmes contended that it made him more confident. After he did it, he was in a different place. He had a very abrasive personality, but there was a peace about him for a while. His confidence improved, and his feelings of inadequacy were reduced. Jobs came to believe that he could impart that feeling of confidence to others and thus push them to do things they hadn't thought possible. Holmes had broken up with Kotke and joined a religious cult in San Francisco that expected her to sever ties with all past friends. But Jobs rejected that injunction. He arrived at the cult house in his Ford Ranchero one day and announced that he was driving up to Friedland's apple farm and she was to come. Even more brazenly, he said she would have to drive part of the way, even though she didn't know how to use the stick shift. Once we got on the open road, he made me get behind the wheel 
and he shifted the car until we got up to 55 miles per hour, she recalled. Then he puts on a tape of Dylan's blood on the tracks, lays his head in my lap, and goes to sleep. He had the attitude that he could do anything, and therefore so can you. He put his life in my hands, so that made me do something I didn't think I could do. It was the brighter side of what would become known as his reality distortion field. If you trust him, you can do things, Holmes said. If he's decided that something should happen, then he's just going to make it happen. Breakout One day in early 1975, Al Alcorn was sitting in his office at Atari when Ron Wayne burst in. Hey, Stevie is back, he shouted. Wow, bring him on in, Alcorn replied. Job shuffled in, barefoot, wearing a saffron robe, and carrying a copy of Be Here Now, which he handed to Alcorn and insisted he read. Can I have my job back? he asked. He looked like a Hare Krishna guy, but it was great to see him, Alcorn recalled. So I said, sure. Once again, for the sake of harmony, Jobs worked mostly at night. Wozniak, who was living in an apartment nearby and working at HP, would come by after dinner to hang out and play the video games. He had become addicted to Pong at a Sunnyvale bowling alley, and he was able to build a version that he hooked up to his home TV set. One day in the late summer of 1975, Nolan Bushnell, defying the prevailing wisdom that paddle games were over, decided to develop a single-player version of Pong. Instead of competing against an opponent, the player would volley the ball into a wall that lost a brick whenever it was hit. He called Jobs into his office, sketched it out on his little blackboard, and asked him to design it. There would be a bonus, Bushnell told him, for every chip fewer than 50 that he used. Bushnell knew that Jobs was not a great engineer, but he assumed correctly that he would recruit Wozniak, who was always hanging around. I looked at it as a two-for-one thing, Bushnell recalled. Woz was a better engineer. Wozniak was thrilled when Jobs asked him to help and proposed splitting the fee. This was the most wonderful offer in my life, to actually design a game that people would use, he recalled. Jobs said it had to be done in four days and with the fewest chips possible. What he hid from Wozniak was that the deadline was one that Jobs had imposed because he needed to get to the all-one farm to help prepare for the apple harvest. He also didn't mention that there was a bonus tied to keeping down the number of chips. A game like this might take most engineers a few months, Wozniak recalled. I thought there was no way I could do it, but Steve made me sure that I could. So he stayed up four nights in a row and did it. During the day at HP, Wozniak would sketch out his design on paper. Then, after a fast-food meal, he would go right to Atari and stay all night. As Wozniak churned out the design, Jobs sat on a bench to his left, implementing it by wire-wrapping the chips onto a breadboard. While Steve was breadboarding, I spent time playing my favorite game ever, which was the auto racing game Grand Track 10, Wozniak said. Astonishingly, they were able to get the job done in four days, and Wozniak used only 45 chips. 
Recollections differ, but by most accounts Jobs simply gave Wozniak half of the base fee and not the bonus Bushnell paid for saving five chips. It would be another ten years before Wozniak discovered, by being shown the tale in a book on the history of Atari titled Zap, that Jobs had been paid this bonus. I think that Steve needed the money, and he just didn't tell me the truth, Wozniak later said. When he talks about it now, there are long pauses, and he admits that it causes him pain. I wish he had just been honest. If he had told me he needed the money, he should have known I would have just given it to him. He was a friend. You help your friends. To Wozniak, it showed a fundamental difference in their characters. Ethics always mattered to me, and I still don't understand why he would have gotten paid one thing and told me he'd gotten paid another, he said. But, you know, people are different. When Jobs learned this story was published, he called Wozniak to deny it. He told me that he didn't remember doing it, and that if he did something like that he would remember it, so he probably didn't do it, Wozniak recalled. When I asked Jobs directly, he became unusually quiet and hesitant. I don't know where that allegation comes from, he said. I gave him half the money I ever got. That's how I've always been with Woz. I mean, Woz stopped working in 1978. He never did one ounce of work after 1978. And yet he got exactly the same shares of Apple stock that I did. Is it possible that memories are muddled and that Jobs did not, in fact, shortchange Wozniak? There's a chance that my memory is all wrong and messed up, Wozniak told me. But after a pause, he reconsidered. But no, I remember the details of this one, the $350 check. He confirmed his memory with Nolan Bushnell and Al Alcorn. I remember talking about the bonus money to Waz, and he was upset, Bushnell said. I said, yes, there was a bonus for each chip they saved, and he just shook his head and then clucked his tongue. Whatever the truth, Wozniak later insisted that it was not worth rehashing. Jobs is a complex person, he said, and being manipulative is just the darker facet of the traits that make him successful. Wozniak would never have been that way, but as he points out, he also could never have built Apple. I would rather let it pass, he said when I pressed the point. It's not something I want to judge Steve by. The Atari experience helped shape Jobs' approach to business and design. He appreciated the user-friendliness of Atari's insert quarter avoid Klingons games. That simplicity rubbed off on him and made him a very focused product person, said Ron Wayne. Jobs also absorbed some of Bushnell's take-no-prisoners attitude. Nolan wouldn't take no for an answer, according to Alcorn and this was Steve's first impression of how things got done. Nolan was never abusive, like Steve sometimes is, but he had the same driven attitude. It made me cringe, but damn it, it got things done. In that way, Nolan was a mentor for Jobs. Bushnell agreed, There is something indefinable in an entrepreneur, and I saw that in Steve, he said. He was interested not just in engineering, but also the business aspects. I taught him that if you act like you can do something, then it will work. 
I told him, pretend to be completely in control, and people will assume that you are. Chapter 5 The Apple One Turn on, boot up, jack in. Machines of Loving Grace In San Francisco and the Santa Clara Valley during the late 1960s, various cultural currents flowed together. There was the technology revolution that began with the growth of military contractors and soon included electronics firms, microchip makers, video game designers, and computer companies. There was a hacker subculture filled with wireheads, freakers, cyberpunks, hobbyists, and just plain geeks that included engineers who didn't conform to the HP mold and their kids who weren't attuned to the wavelengths of the subdivisions. There were quasi-academic groups doing studies on the effects of LSD. Participants included Doug Engelbart of the Augmentation Research Center in Palo Alto, who later helped develop the computer mouse and graphical user interfaces, and Ken Kesey, who celebrated the drug with music and light shows featuring a house band that became the Grateful Dead. There was the hippie movement, born out of the Bay Area's beat generation, and the rebellious political activists, born out of the free speech movement at Berkeley. Overlaid on it all were various self-fulfillment movements pursuing paths to personal enlightenment, Zen and Hinduism, meditation and yoga, primal scream and sensory deprivation, Esalen and Est. This fusion of flower power and processor power, enlightenment and technology, was embodied by Steve Jobs as he meditated in the mornings, audited physics classes at Stanford, worked nights at Atari, and dreamed of starting his own business. There was just something going on here, he said, looking back at the time and place. The best music came from here. The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Joan Baez, Janis Joplin, and so did the Integrated Circuit, and things like the Whole Earth Catalog. Initially, the technologists and the hippies did not interface well. Many in the counterculture saw computers as ominous and Orwellian, the province of the Pentagon and the power structure. In The Myth of the Machine, the historian Lewis Mumford warned that computers were sucking away our freedom and destroying life-enhancing values. An injunction on punch cards of the period, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate, became an ironic phrase of the anti-war left. But by the early 1970s, a shift was underway. Computing went from being dismissed as a tool of bureaucratic control to being embraced as a symbol of individual expression and liberation, John Markoff wrote in his study of the counterculture's convergence with the computer industry, what the Dormouse said. It was an ethos lyrically expressed in Richard Brodigan's 1967 poem, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, and the cyberdelic fusion was certified when Timothy Leary declared that personal computers had become the new LSD, and years later revised his famous mantra to proclaim, Turn on, boot up, jack in. 
The musician Bono, who later became a friend of Jobs, often discussed with him why those immersed in the rock, drugs, rebel counterculture of the Bay Area ended up helping to create the personal computer industry. The people who invented the 21st century were pot-smoking, sandal-wearing hippies from the West Coast like Steve because they saw differently, he said. The hierarchical systems of the East Coast, England, Germany, and Japan do not encourage this different thinking. The 60s produced an anarchic mindset that is great for imagining a world not yet in existence. One person who encouraged the denizens of the counterculture to make common cause with the hackers was Stuart Brand, a puckish visionary who generated fun and ideas over many decades. Brand was a participant in one of the early 60s LSD studies in Palo Alto. He joined with his fellow subject, Ken Kesey, to produce the acid-celebrating Trips Festival, appeared in the opening scene of Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and worked with Doug Engelbart to create a seminal sound-and-light presentation of new technologies called The Mother of All Demos. Most of our generation scorn computers as the embodiment of centralized control, Brand later noted, but a tiny contingent, later called hackers, embraced computers and set about transforming them into tools of liberation. That turned out to be the true royal road to the future. Bran ran the Whole Earth Truck Store, which began as a roving truck that sold useful tools and educational materials, and in 1968 he decided to extend its reach with the Whole Earth Catalog. On its first cover was the famous picture of Earth taken from space. Its subtitle was Access to Tools. The underlying philosophy was that technology could be our friend. Brand wrote on the first page of the first edition, A realm of intimate personal power is developing. Power of the individual to conduct his own education, find his own inspiration, shape his own environment, and share his adventure with whoever is interested. Tools that aid this process are sought and promoted by the Whole Earth Catalog. Buckminster Fuller followed with a poem that began, I see God in the instruments and mechanisms that work reliably. Jobs became a Whole Earth fan. He was particularly taken by the final issue, which came out in 1971 when he was still in high school, and he brought it with him to college and then to the All One Farm. On the back cover of their final issue was a photograph of an early morning country road, the kind you might find yourself hitchhiking on if you were so adventurous. Beneath it were the words, Stay hungry, stay foolish. Brand sees Jobs as one of the purest embodiments of the cultural mix that the catalog sought to celebrate. Steve is right at the nexus of the counterculture and technology, he said. He got the notion of tools for human use. Brand's catalog was published with the help of the Portola Institute, a foundation dedicated to the fledgling field of computer education. The foundation also helped launch the People's Computer Company, which was not a company at all, but a newsletter and organization with the motto, Computer Power to the People.
There were occasional Wednesday night potluck dinners, and two of the regulars, Gordon French and Fred Moore, decided to create a more formal club where news about personal electronics could be shared. They were energized by the arrival of the January 1975 issue of Popular Mechanics, which had on its cover the first personal computer kit, the Altair. The Altair wasn't much, just a $495 pile of parts that had to be soldered to a board that would then do little, but for hobbyists and hackers it heralded the dawn of a new era. Bill Gates and Paul Allen read the magazine and started working on a version of BASIC, an easy-to-use programming language for the Altair. It also caught the attention of Jobs and Wozniak, and when an Altair kit arrived at the People's Computer Company, it became the centerpiece for the first meeting of the club that French and Moore had decided to launch. The Homebrew Computer Club The group became known as the Homebrew Computer Club, and it encapsulated the whole Earth fusion between the counterculture and technology. It would become to the personal computer era something akin to what the Turk's Head Coffee House was to the age of Dr. Johnson, a place where ideas were exchanged and disseminated. Moore wrote the flyer for the first meeting, held on March 5, 1975, in French's Menlo Park garage. Are you building your own computer? Terminal? TV? Typewriter? It asked. If so, you might like to come to a gathering of people with like-minded interests. Alan Baum spotted the flyer on the HP bulletin board and called Wozniak, who agreed to go with him. That night turned out to be one of the most important nights of my life, Wozniak recalled. About thirty other people showed up, spilling out of French's open garage door, and they took turns describing their interests. Wozniak, who later admitted to being extremely nervous, said he liked video games, pay movies for hotels, scientific calculator design, and TV terminal design, according to the minutes prepared by Moore. There was a demonstration of the new Altair, but more important to Wozniak was seeing the specification sheet for a microprocessor. As he thought about the microprocessor, a chip that had an entire central processing unit on it, he had an insight. He had been designing a terminal with a keyboard and a monitor that would connect to a distant mini-computer. Using a microprocessor, he could put some of the capacity of the mini-computer inside the terminal itself so it could become a small standalone computer on a desktop. It was an enduring idea. Keyboard, screen, and computer all in one integrated personal package. This whole vision of a personal computer just popped into my head, he said. That night, I started to sketch out on paper what would later become known as the Apple One. At first, he planned to use the same microprocessor that was in the Altair, an Intel 8080. But each of those cost almost more than my monthly rent. So he looked for an alternative. He found one in the Motorola 6800, which a friend at HP was able to get for $40 apiece. Then he discovered a chip made by MOS Technologies 
that was electronically the same but cost only $20. It would make his machine affordable, but it would carry a long-term cost. Intel's chips ended up becoming the industry standard, which would haunt Apple when its computers were incompatible with it. After work each day, Wozniak would go home for a TV dinner and then return to HP to moonlight on his computer. He spread out the parts in his cubicle, figured out their placement, and soldered them onto his motherboard. Then he began writing the software that would get the microprocessor to display images on the screen. Because he could not afford to pay for computer time, he wrote the code by hand. After a couple of months, he was ready to test it. I typed a few keys on the keyboard, and I was shocked. The letters were displayed on the screen. It was Sunday, June 29, 1975, a milestone for the personal computer. It was the first time in history, Wozniak later said, anyone had typed a character on a keyboard and seen it show up on their own computer screen right in front of them. Jobs was impressed. He peppered Wozniak with questions. Could the computer ever be networked? Was it possible to add a disk for memory storage? He also began to help Woz get components. Particularly important were the dynamic random access memory chips. Jobs made a few calls and was able to score some from Intel for free. Steve is just that sort of person, said Wozniak. I mean, he knew how to talk to a sales representative. I could never have done that. I'm too shy. Jobs began to accompany Wozniak to homebrew meetings, carrying the TV monitor and helping to set things up. The meetings now attracted more than 100 enthusiasts and had been moved to the auditorium of the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Presiding with a pointer and a freeform manner was Lee Felsenstein, another embodiment of the merger between the world of computing and the counterculture. He was an engineering school dropout, a participant in the free speech movement, and an anti-war activist. He had written for the alternative newspaper Berkeley Barb and then gone back to being a computer engineer. Waz was usually too shy to talk in the meetings, but people would gather around his machine afterward and he would proudly show off his progress. Moore had tried to instill in the homebrew an ethos of swapping and sharing rather than commerce. The theme of the club, Waz said, was give to help others. It was an expression of the hacker ethic that information should be free and all authority mistrusted. I designed the Apple One because I wanted to give it away for free to other people, said Wozniak. This was not an outlook that Bill Gates embraced. After he and Paul Allen had completed their basic interpreter for the Altair, Gates was appalled that members of the homebrew were making copies of it and sharing it without paying him. So he wrote what would become a famous letter to the club. As the majority of hobbyists must be aware, most of you steal your software. Is this fair? One thing you do is prevent good software from being written. Who can afford to do professional work for nothing? I would appreciate letters from anyone who wants to pay up. Steve Jobs similarly did not embrace the notion that Wozniak's creations 
be it a blue box or a computer, wanted to be free. So he convinced Wozniak to stop giving away copies of his schematics. Most people didn't have time to build it themselves anyway, Jobs argued. Why don't we build and sell printed circuit boards to them? It was an example of their symbiosis. Every time I'd design something great, Steve would find a way to make money for us, said Wozniak. Wozniak admitted that he would have never thought of doing that on his own. It never crossed my mind to sell computers. It was Steve who said, let's hold them in the air and sell a few. Jobs worked out a plan to pay a guy he knew at Atari to draw the circuit boards and then print up 50 or so. That would cost about $1,000 plus the fee to the designer. They could sell them for $40 apiece and perhaps clear a profit of $700. Wozniak was dubious that they could sell them all. I didn't see how we would make our money back, he recalled. He was already in trouble with his landlord for bouncing checks and now had to pay each month in cash. Jobs knew how to appeal to Wozniak. He didn't argue that they were sure to make money, but instead that they would have a fun adventure. Even if we lose our money, we'll have a company, said Jobs as they were driving in his Volkswagen bus. For once in our lives, we'll have a company. This was enticing to Wozniak, even more than any prospect of getting rich. He recalled, I was excited to think about us like that to be two best friends starting a company. Wow! I knew right then that I'd do it. How could I not? In order to raise the money they needed, Wozniak sold his HP 65 calculator for $500, though the buyer ended up stiffing him for half of that. For his part, Jobs sold his Volkswagen bus for $1,500, but the person who bought it came to find him two weeks later and said the engine had broken down and Jobs agreed to pay for half of the repairs. Despite these little setbacks, they now had, with their own small savings thrown in, about $1,300 in working capital, the design for a product, and a plan. They would start their own computer company. Apple is born. Now that they had decided to start a business, they needed a name. Jobs had gone for another visit to the all-one farm, where he had been pruning the Gravenstein apple trees, and Wozniak picked him up at the airport. On the ride down to Los Altos, they bandied around options. They considered some typical tech words, such as matrix, and some neologisms, such as executech, and some straightforward boring names like Personal Computers, Inc. The deadline for deciding was the next day, when Jobs wanted to start filing the papers. Finally, Jobs proposed Apple Computer. I was on one of my fruitarian diets, he explained. I had just come back from the Apple farm. It sounded fun, spirited, and not intimidating. Apple took the edge off the word computer. Plus, it would get us ahead of Atari in the phone book. He told Wozniak that if a better name did not hit them by the next afternoon, they would just stick with Apple. And they did. Apple. It was a smart choice. The word instantly signaled friendliness and simplicity. It managed to be both slightly offbeat 
and as normal as a slice of pie. There was a whiff of counterculture, back-to-nature earthiness to it, yet nothing could be more American. And the two words together, Apple Computer, provided an amusing disjuncture. It doesn't quite make sense, said Mike Markala, who soon thereafter became the first chairman of the new company. So it forces your brain to dwell on it. Apple and computers, that doesn't go together. So it helped us grow brand awareness. Wozniak was not yet ready to commit full-time. He was an HP company man at heart, or so he thought, and he wanted to keep his day job there. Jobs realized he needed an ally to help corral Wozniak and adjudicate if there was a disagreement. So he enlisted his friend Ron Wayne, the middle-aged engineer at Atari, who had once started a slot machine company. Wayne knew that it would not be easy to make Wozniak quit HP, nor was it necessary right away. Instead, the key was to convince him that his computer designs would be owned by the Apple partnership. Woz had a parental attitude toward the circuits he developed, and he wanted to be able to use them in other applications or let HP use them, Wayne said. Jobs and I realized that these circuits would be the core of Apple. We spent two hours in a roundtable discussion at my apartment, and I was able to get Woz to accept this. His argument was that a great engineer would be remembered only if he teamed with a great marketer, and this required him to commit his designs to the partnership. Jobs was so impressed and grateful that he offered Wayne a 10% stake in the new partnership, turning him into a tiebreaker if Jobs and Wozniak disagreed over an issue. They were very different, but they made a powerful team, said Wayne. Jobs at times seemed to be driven by demons, while Woz seemed a naive who was toyed with by angels. Jobs had a bravado that helped him get things done, occasionally by manipulating people. He could be charismatic, even mesmerizing, but also cold and brutal. Wozniak, in contrast, was shy and socially awkward, which made him seem childishly sweet. Woz is very bright in some areas, but he's almost like a savant. Since he was so stunted when it came to dealing with people he didn't know, said Jobs, we were a good pair. It helped that Jobs was awed by Wozniak's engineering wizardry, and Wozniak was awed by Jobs's business drive. I never wanted to deal with people and step on toes, but Steve could call up people he didn't know and make them do things, Wozniak recalled. He could be rough on people he didn't think were smart, but he never treated me rudely, even in later years when maybe I couldn't answer a question as well as he wanted. Even after Wozniak became convinced that his new computer design should become the property of the Apple partnership, he felt that he had to offer it first to HP, since he was working there. I believed it was my duty to tell HP about what I had designed while working for them. That was the right thing and the ethical thing. So he demonstrated it to his managers in the spring of 1976. The senior executive at the meeting was impressed and seemed torn, but he finally said it was not something that HP could develop. It was a hobbyist product, at least for now, and didn't fit into the company's high-quality market segments. I was disappointed, 
Wozniak recalled, but now I was free to enter into the Apple partnership. On April 1st, 1976, Jobs and Wozniak went to Wayne's apartment in Mountain View to draw up the partnership agreement. Wayne said he had some experience writing in legalese, so he composed the three-page document himself. His legalese got the better of him. Paragraphs began with various flourishes. Be it noted herewith. Be it further noted herewith. Now the refor in consideration of the respective assignments of interests. But the division of shares and profits was clear. Forty-five percent, forty-five percent, ten percent. And it was stipulated that any expenditures of more than $100 would require agreement of at least two of the partners. Also, the responsibilities were spelled out. Wozniak shall assume both general and major responsibility for the conduct of electrical engineering. Jobs shall assume general responsibility for electrical engineering and marketing. And Wayne shall assume major responsibility for mechanical engineering and documentation. Jobs signed in lowercase script, Wozniak in careful cursive, and Wayne in an illegible squiggle. Wayne then got cold feet. As Jobs started planning to borrow and spend more money, he recalled the failure of his own company. He didn't want to go through that again. Jobs and Wozniak had no personal assets, but Wayne, who worried about a global financial Armageddon, kept gold coins hidden in his mattress. Because they had structured Apple as a simple partnership rather than a corporation, the partners would be personally liable for the debts, and Wayne was afraid potential creditors would go after him. So he returned to the Santa Clara County office just 11 days later with a statement of withdrawal and an amendment to the partnership agreement. By virtue of a reassessment of understandings by and between all parties, it began, Wayne shall hereinafter cease to function in the status of partner. It noted that in payment for his 10% of the company, he received $800 and shortly afterward, $1,500 more. Had he stayed on and kept his 10% stake, at the end of 2010, it would have been worth approximately $2.6 billion. Instead, he was then living alone in a small home in Paw Rump, Nevada, where he played the penny slot machines and lived off his social security check. He later claimed he had no regrets. I made the best decision for me at the time. Both of them were real whirlwinds, and I knew my stomach, and it wasn't ready for such a ride. Jobs and Wozniak took the stage together for a presentation to the Homebrew Computer Club shortly after they signed Apple into existence. Wozniak held up one of their newly produced circuit boards and described the microprocessor, the 8 kilobytes of memory, and the version of BASIC he had written. He also emphasized what he called the main thing, a human-typable keyboard instead of a stupid cryptic front panel with a bunch of lights and switches. Then it was Jobs' turn. He pointed out that the Apple, unlike the Altair, had all the essential components built in. Then he challenged them with a question. How much would people be willing to pay for such a wonderful machine? 
He was trying to get them to see the amazing value of the apple. It was a rhetorical flourish he would use at product presentations over the ensuing decades. The audience was not very impressed. The Apple had a cut-rate microprocessor, not the Intel 8080. But one important person stayed behind to hear more. His name was Paul Terrell, and in 1975 he had opened a computer store, which he dubbed the Byte Shop, on Camino Real in Menlo Park. Now, a year later, he had three stores and visions of building a national chain. Jobs was thrilled to give him a private demo. Take a look at this, he said. You're going to like what you see. Terrell was impressed enough to hand Jobs and Waz his card. Keep in touch, he said. I'm keeping in touch, Jobs announced the next day when he walked barefooted into the bite shop. He made the sale. Terrell agreed to order 50 computers. But there was a condition. He didn't want just $50 printed circuit boards, for which customers would then have to buy all the chips and do the assembly. That might appeal to a few hardcore hobbyists, but not to most customers. Instead, he wanted the boards to be fully assembled. For that, he was willing to pay about $500 apiece, cash on delivery. Jobs immediately called Wozniak at HP. Are you sitting down? he asked. Wozniak said he wasn't. Jobs nevertheless proceeded to give him the news. I was shocked, just completely shocked, Wozniak recalled. I will never forget that moment. To fill the order, they needed about $15,000 worth of parts. Alan Baum, the third prankster from Homestead High, and his father agreed to loan them $5,000. Jobs tried to borrow more from a bank in Los Altos, but the manager looked at him and, not surprisingly, declined. He went to Halltech Supply and offered an equity stake in Apple in return for the parts, but the owner decided they were a couple of young, scruffy-looking guys and declined. Alcorn at Atari would sell them chips only if they paid cash up front. Finally, Jobs was able to convince the manager of Kramer Electronics to call Paul Terrell to confirm that he had really committed to a $25,000 order. Terrell was at a conference when he heard over a loudspeaker that he had an emergency call. Jobs had been persistent. The Kramer manager told him that two scruffy kids had just walked in waving an order from the bite shop. Was it real? Terrell confirmed that it was, and the store agreed to front Jobs the parts on 30-day credit. Garage Band The Jobs house in Los Altos became the assembly point for the 50 Apple One boards that had to be delivered to the bite shop within 30 days when the payment for the parts would come due. All available hands were enlisted. Jobs and Wozniak, plus Daniel Kotke, his ex-girlfriend Elizabeth Holmes, who had broken away from the cult she had joined, and Jobs' pregnant sister, Patty. Her vacated bedroom, as well as the kitchen table and garage, were commandeered as workspace. Holmes, who had taken jewelry classes, was given the task of soldering chips. Most I did well, but I got flux on a few of them, she recalled. This didn't please Jobs. We don't have a chip to spare, 
he railed correctly. He shifted her to bookkeeping and paperwork at the kitchen table, and he did the soldering himself. When they completed a board, they would hand it off to Wozniak. I would plug each assembled board into the TV and keyboard to test to see if it worked, he said. If it did, I put it in a box. If it didn't, I'd figure what pin hadn't gotten into the socket right. Paul Jobs suspended his sideline of repairing old cars so that the Apple team could have the whole garage. He put in a long old workbench, hung a schematic of the computer on the new plasterboard wall he built, and set up rows of labeled drawers for the components. He also built a burn box bathed in heat lamps so the computer boards could be tested by running overnight at high temperatures. When there was the occasional eruption of temper, an occurrence not uncommon around his son, Paul would impart some of his calm. What's the matter, he would say. You got a feather up your ass? In return, he occasionally asked to borrow back the TV set, which was the only one in the house, so he could watch the end of a football game. During some of these breaks, Jobs and Kotke would go outside and play guitar on the lawn. Clara Jobs didn't mind losing most of her house to piles of parts and house guests, but she was frustrated by her son's increasingly quirky diets. She would roll her eyes at his latest eating obsessions, recalled Holmes. She just wanted him to be healthy, and he would be making weird pronouncements like, I'm a fruitarian, and I will only eat leaves picked by virgins in the moonlight. After a dozen assembled boards had been approved by Wozniak, Jobs drove them over to the bite shop. Terrell was a bit taken aback. There was no power supply, case, monitor, or keyboard. He had expected something more finished, but Jobs stared him down, and he agreed to take delivery and pay. After thirty days, Apple was on the verge of being profitable. We were able to build the boards more cheaply than we thought, because I got a good deal on parts, Jobs recalled. So the fifty we sold to the bite shop almost paid for all the material we needed to make a hundred boards. Now they could make a real profit by selling the remaining fifty to their friends and homebrew compatriots. Elizabeth Holmes officially became the part-time bookkeeper at four dollars an hour, driving down from San Francisco once a week and figuring out how to port Jobs's checkbook into a ledger. In order to seem like a real company, Jobs hired an answering service, which would relay messages to his mother. Ron Wayne drew a logo, using the ornate line-drawing style of Victorian illustrated fiction that featured Newton sitting under a tree framed by a quote from Wordsworth.